Hi, welcome to the Edinburgh Space Data Capital podcast. I'm Kim McAllister. And I'm Murray Collins. I'm Space Lead at the Bay Centre. Murray, I think we've created a monster. I wouldn't say it's a monster, but it's amazing that the BBC have, have broadcast the section. There How do you feel go. about that? <laughs> I think that's a bit postmodern. You know, a podcast on the BBC, I love it. I'm so pleased that they saw <laughs> the the potential and the story and, yeah, what an amazing thing to do, hey? I think it's, yeah, fantastic, isn't it? Um, Charles is a, obviously a superstar, so people are loving hearing what he's got to talk about. And it's not just the BBC that's interested. We've been getting emails from all over the world looking to collaborate with businesses in Scotland, looking to talk to everyone in Bayes Centre. It's it's brilliant. I'm so excited that people are beginning to really take notice of this. I know, isn't it exciting? So today we had an email from somebody in Bavaria looking to make stronger connections between uh, Edinburgh and Germany. And then I believe you, you've had listeners from... Uh, contact you from New Zealand. Is from that New right? Zealand, yep, and yeah, South that's, America. That's, and that's that's as far as you can go without coming back. Yeah. Again, right. Um, and then, of course, uh, the US connection. So David and his team have been reaching out to us. That's brilliant. I know. I feel like we might get to Houston before the end of the year. Well, let's see what happens with uh, with international travel. I think virtually, at least, we yeah. will be there sooner rather than later. We are. Those so are our ambitions. Brilliant. Murray told me before we started recording that he wasn't going to stop until we had a broadcast from the International Space Station. So that's where we're going with this podcast. Well, I, I wasn't compelling you to, <laughs> to go to the ISS because that's going to involve quite a lot of training. And I know you're quite busy. But, yeah. Um, I think I've got I've got window in that. I think you could be a good astronaut. Me, no chance. I can't even handle lockdown. I could never get into a spaceship. <laughs> well, that, that was a really interesting point from Charles, wasn't it? The similarities between life on Mars and life in a lockdown. So maybe that just chimed a bell with yeah. BBC that a lot of listeners would want to you know, draw those analogies between the way that we, we're living at the moment, hopefully not for too much longer, oh, please goodness and, and what life would be like on, on other planets. But today we're not talking about deep space. What are we talking about today, Murray? No, this this week I wanted to talk about sustainability and the business of sustainability. Sustainability is obviously a pretty broad term, but I wanted to bring on Gary Watmouth, who's a colleague in the School of Geosciences, who's doing some really pioneering work around the use of satellite data to measure poverty, in particular in sub-Saharan Africa. It might not be immediately obvious how you'd be able to do that, but Gary's work has really led the field. He's going to talk about some of the mechanics of, of actually doing that using satellite data. And then I thought the business of sustainability would concern how people are using data from satellite observations and then integrating that with other data, so financial data, to do some really interesting things to innovate and provide new products and services. So we've got Robin Sampson coming on from Trade in Space. And uh, he's going to be telling us all kinds of interesting things about blockchain and the creation of new contracts based upon the observations and predictions of crop productivity. Yes, yeah, I can see I'm just <laughs> for, the, for the listener, we, we're actually using a video cast <laughs> between Kim and myself and Kim's sitting there shaking her head. <laughs> My head just explodes every time I do an issue of this podcast. Honestly, it's just incredible. So we've got... One person who's measuring poverty from space and another person who's fusing blockchain with satellite data to inform commodities traders. 
I mean, I told yes. my husband about this and he just looked at me and like, I don't understand what you just said. It's incredible. The intelligence is incredible. Well, it's the scope of the innovation, I think, as well, is that we're responding to grand challenges here. I they think are that's big, really important. Big challenges, yeah. Yeah, because it's not just R&D for the sake of, you know, producing knowledge, which is certainly is worthy in its own right. And we will always do that in universities. But this is very much challenge focused and based around innovation. Gary's work, it works towards the, uh, specifically the sustainable development goals. And so, you know, if we have these grand ambitions of reducing poverty by a certain amount, by a certain time, you of course need to have some way of measuring your success in doing that. Um, and then with, with Robin, what's really fascinating for me is that he's bringing together the satellite observations with the financial sector and then throwing in uh, blockchain into the mix. So the idea of creating secure contracts based upon uh, observations of what's going on in agricultural areas and predictions of what will happen in agricultural areas, I think that's that's really, really innovative. And he's won various awards as a consequence. So I think a brilliant person to have on this podcast. He is. And you know what? He's a big fan of the podcast, which was really nice to hear. And he read everyone he works with. <laughs> we, seems... actually, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't let people on if they're not a fan. That's well, that's one work. of the considerations. Yeah, that's the first thing I ask. No, he kept mentioning people that we've already interviewed. So he's worked with Abuka, who was on our second episode. He's worked okay. with Matt Williams, who was on a different yes. episode. So... Yeah. It's, I'm hoping that listeners are beginning to understand the ecosystem here, that nobody's in, working in isolation, that it's very interdisciplinary, that everybody works together and that that's the strength of the base centre as well as the full university. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's everybody's pulling in together and bringing their own expertise. And then Edinburgh sits in the broader Scottish ecosystem, which is growing quite rapidly. And at one end of a supply chain, we have people developing their spaceports and rockets and then the other end is yeah the data analytics that we're doing at the base center and all the surrounding companies so exciting so exciting so enough from us we need to speak to gary and find out how he actually does bring gary on yeah how does he measure poverty from space yeah i mean well let him explain I am Gary Watliff. I'm a lecturer and researcher at uh, Geosciences at Edinburgh University. Uh, my title is quite long. It's interdisciplinary lecturer in land use and social ecological systems. Much of your research for the past, I mean, decade, I suppose, has been around the UN Sustainable Development Goals. What are you doing in that area? So I'm interested in trying to improve the way that we can monitor and evaluate progress towards socioeconomic outcomes. So these are the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, especially the number one, which is the reduction in poverty. But I'm trying to do that using satellite data. So we, we have a huge problem with knowing what's going on around the world. Often we're using surveys that are very expensive, they're very good, but they're, they're not collected very frequently. And to increase that frequency will cost a lot of money. So we're exploring, my research explores how, or is it possible to use satellite data to fill in some of these gaps between surveys? So the the big one would be the census every 10 years. Can we fill in some gaps to understand what's going on in terms of poverty and well-being? 
during these uh, gaps between the surveys. So how are you using satellite data to do that? So we use it in various different ways. So where a lot of the research we do at the moment in our group is actually thinking about what poverty is in different parts of the world. We specialise in rural areas of developing countries and then we look at understanding what is driving well-being and, and poverty in those regions, how people are achieving their livelihoods in terms of what do they do for their livings. So what do they do to earn money or how do they feed themselves and then we look at what sort of things we could measure from satellite data to answer some of those questions so this can be some of the big ones we've used in the past is just like looking at land cover maps and then linking those back to the community level poverty so in places like india you get communities that if they're right on the edge of a river that floods regularly that's not a great place to be so you can start to look at if you're very close to a river and you don't have any other so forest it's just agricultural land you've not got many other alternative sources of income because the majority of these people work in agriculture so it's picking apart these different landscape characteristics in these in these regions and more recently we've been working in kenya with very high resolution data. So this is less than two meters spatial resolution. So we can see a lot of detail in these areas. And we're actually there, we're starting to look at building types as well. So we can look at individual households, what type of roof material they have, the type of roads and footpaths and how, how many of those there are connecting them to say markets and, and towns. So we try and do it though from a perspective of poverty. We, take, we start with poverty. A lot of our work is using sustainable livelihoods. So this is this approach that DFID and quite a few international organizations use where you split well-being and poverty into five different types of capital they call it so rather than just have an income of a you know like this two dollars a day um, international poverty line you actually split it into these different capitals so you have things like financial which is your access to money and um, banking and, and loans and things but you also then have human which is your own health and your ability to sell yourself in the market and earn money from that social capital is the third one that's sort of your groups your cooperatives if you're in a particular region of the world where you might be able to share knowledge and share of resources at certain times of the year for harvests, for example. And then the two that we focus on a lot more is natural and physical capital. So natural capital being the forests, the water, the soil uh, conditions, and then the physical capital being, say, your irrigation infrastructure, your road types and, and that sort of stuff. So we, we use those five capitals and try and fill as many as we can with satellite data. But a lot of the research is what can we say in this area of the world about these five capitals or about this type of poverty. It's just amazing. You can see roof tiles from space. Uh, yeah, so we can see in the high resolution imagery, yeah, we, we've found in Kenya when we've worked on this, we, we have this two meter resolution data and we can do some statistics with it to get it down to about 60 centimeters. And then from that, we can use that information to get an idea of the type of roof material. So often, Poorer communities in these areas have thatch roofs, so it's vegetative roofs. And in the surveys that we've got uh, for these particular sites, it looks like as people's livelihoods and well-being improves and their incomes increase and they have more confidence that that will ma be maintained over time, they spend more money on improving their building. So they'll change the floor material from a compacted earth to, say, concrete. They'll change the, the wall material to brick or cement. And they'll change the roof to, say, corrugated metal or uh, tiles. Now, obviously, the, mo the main thing we can see from space is the roof. So we can actually see these changes in buildings from thatch to metal. We've, we can see those changes in time in the satellite imagery. What we're trying to do at the moment is just relate that back to the survey data. The surveys are showing us that as people's incomes are improving, 
they're changing to their metal roofs. Uh, the problem we've got is actually just linking that back together with the uh, with the satellite data. So we're still working on that at the moment. Bit of detective work required, sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite a complex one just as the way that this high resolution imagery works as well. It's not quite as easy to work with as some of the other standardized sort of global products, say Landsat and Modis that you've been talking about in previous uh, podcasts. The Which sensors that we're using? working on. So we use a lot at the moment. Uh, it's Digital Globes. It's QuickBird, Worldview Two, Worldview Three. Um, so they're quite a long time period now of, of imagery is we have to pay for the imagery it's, it's quite expensive but the idea is that we test it on this level and then we try and upscale it back towards a sentinel 2 which is 10 and 20 meters and landsat at 30 meters but we we got this opportunity to work at this super local level of individual households to see what can we actually say if we had a lot of money and a lot of time the problem with those data is their sensors are um, movable so most satellites, as they orbit the Earth, their sensors don't move in the same way that these sensors move. So you can have different view and illumination angles each time. So often the buildings that you're looking at appear to shift in space and sometimes look a little bit bigger than they actually are just because of the way the sensor is moving and the, the way that the sun, especially is reflected by these pitched roofs, when we have pitched metal roofs, it causes a problem. So we're still trying to overcome some of these issues. Wow, that's amazing. You must really be inspired by your work. Yeah, yeah, it's why I did a, a PhD. I don't do the research for just for fun, really. I'd really enjoy it, but I got into it because I wanted to try and make a difference and try and improve outcomes in development terms. So take um, that to the end user. Of, Who's using this information? Is it governments? Is it companies? How, are, how is this information being used? We've worked with IFAD, which is the International Fund for Agriculture and Development, before to try and see what we could say about some of their projects. But at the moment we're still developing this stuff and it's on very local levels so the the kenya example we've worked on is a 10 by 10 kilometer uh, region of the world which was part of the millennium villages project so we're still developing this we've got 14 countries to work on though for this data and we're we're working in other areas as well so we're, we're trying to develop it so that we can see over time first we've we've done this at sin individual time periods so we can look at the relationship between these very detailed household surveys and the high resolution satellite data for a particular time period. We're now looking at that change over time. So that's where the building change comes into play. Um, and we also look at the change in poverty over time. There's a lot of challenges with looking at change in poverty over time, um, especially with the way that it's been measured in the surveys because it's looking at assets um, and they don't change very quickly in a lot of places. Mm. So we get big fluctuations in the satellite data and not necessarily big fluctuations in our or big changes in our asset indices, our measures of poverty. So we're still working on a lot of this stuff now to, to see what is changing. Wow. So are you writing the algorithms to deal with the big data or how? what's your background? My background is geography. I don't do a lot of the algorithm writing at the moment. I'm learning. So we have sort of masters and PhD students and I work with the, the guys in informatics. We've been developing that. So one of the team uh, trying to segment one of the images that I've, I've developed. It took my approach it took us two years to develop the approach um, he's managed to replicate and even improve on that in about what, six months and now when he's running the algorithm it's taking a matter of minutes to, to run it and hours takes hours so um i know my limitations um and i'm yeah but we work at especially edinburgh is really really helpful for doing that because we can work across into informatics and collaborate there so really really good interdisciplinary teams it's definitely a very cool thing about edinburgh is how many experts you have across so many different areas right I mean whether it's geosciences engineering informatics 
And it does seem to be quite yeah. easy for everyone to work together on these projects. And you seem to be a good example of that. Yeah. And Edinburgh's, um, where when I was doing my PhD, which was on this as well, which was trying to, you know, essentially map poverty from space. When you're trying to do your elevator pitch, that's kind of what you boil it down to, even though it's a lot more complex. And Edinburgh was one of the first places where when I presented this stuff, people didn't immediately say, why? Why would you even try to do that? It sounds too hard. Here it was like, that sounds really interesting. That's, that's a cough worked from... 2012 to try and get a job here to, to actually work with these different teams and it's not just the beers and the the informatics as well you know the, there's a lot of economics comes into play when we're working here a lot of agriculture as well so I'm, i work with the food and food security and agriculture um, global center and also um you really get down to in the previous project in kenya as well we've got down to psychology as well because you were looking at how people are utilizing the landscape and what decisions they're making and why they're making those decisions because a lot of the time it doesn't appear rational of why they would do the particular things they're doing with their land. And it, a lot of it's cultural, historical, and there's all sorts of other issues going on that we start to get into. So we can talk across all these different disciplines for this particular uh, work. That's amazing, isn't it? And so inspiring. It's just great to hear stories like this. You said you've been trying to get to Edinburgh since 2012. When did you get here? Uh, 20, December 2017. Oh, it took you five years. So yeah, I left Southampton for my PhD, went to New York, uh, did a postdoc, did another postdoc in Denmark and then um, got the job here. Yeah. And what is it you like? Obviously, you've mentioned the, the opportunities work-wise. What else do you like about living in Edinburgh? Well, the city is amazing. It's a really nice place to live. Um, although saying that, I live outside um, of the city, but I like the city, the feel. It's really cool. Um, it's very busy at certain times of the year, but it's, it's quite a small city as well, so you can. You get all the benefits of a big city without having all of the people, um, which is something I found I didn't like when I was in New York. <laughs> mm -hmm. Edinburgh obviously has this ambition of being the space data capital of Europe. First of all, do you think that's possible? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think a lot of space data, you need a lot of know-how in how to manage that data, which is one of the big problems. And Edinburgh certainly has the ability to help with that and, and improve that. So I think, yeah, it's certainly an option. And I think with the space data as well, it's what you do with it that matters. It's yeah, having that data, there's loads of it around. It's actually converting that into useful products. And that's where the, the expertise lies in Edinburgh across different disciplines that we have that to call on. Gary Watmouth there, who can see roof tiles from space. Who could even believe that was possible? I think it's incredible. It is incredible. And he's a great guy. He's good fun, isn't he? He is good fun. I know Gary from a trip made out to Zimbabwe last year, where we were setting up the foundations for future uh, research activities. We visited a national park in a fairly remote area of Zimbabwe, which required us to fly in a little Cessna aircraft, like a little four-seater for an hour and a half. And during that flight, it emerged that Gary was not a big fan of light aircraft. So we flew for about an hour and he has an athlete's watch, which showed that he had a BPM, I think 160. For oh the entire no, flight. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> but he, he absolutely soldiered through it. And it's me sort of grinning in the front, enjoying the flight and uh, poor old Gary in the back. And being That's super there. sympathetic, I'm sure, Murray. As ever, mm. as ever. But the, the purpose is to understand how we might work with uh, people in Zimbabwe and across Southern Africa to use the kind of work uh, which Gary's just described to support Ooh. conservation and socioeconomic development. And so we had a fantastic experience there. Um, it's very, very remote field camp. 
and on arrival the guy who ran it took us for a little bit of a tour and uh, emphasized the importance of using torches so that when we bumped into lines around the cabins we could avoid treading on them and he said all you have to do is just don't make sure you don't run away just stand there and let the line move around you rather than you trying to run away from the line and what was his heartbeat at that stage for god's sake <laughs> well we had to lift him off the ground at that point <laughs> actually um you know gary was uh, was great and uh, turned out to be an absolute ninja at spotting uh, elephants when we went off on a foot patrol you have um, the craziest life, Murray Collins. Yes, uh, and that's even before the um, buffalo tried to charge us. But we had we had a guy with an AK forty seven to uh, to protect us. Although I subsequently learned that an AK forty seven wouldn't stop uh, charging African Cape buffalo. I'm glad you survived to tell that tale. That's um, yeah. But we need to move on because um, great as your Tarzan tales are, we want to speak to Robin Sampson and trade in yes. space. Let's bring Robin on. I think, uh, as I say, it's this intersection between financial services, the blockchain, blockchain technology, and Earth observation, which is brilliant. So let's bring him on. My name is Robin Sampson. I founded Trade in Space a couple of years ago. We're based currently at the Base Centre. We've got a few desks there. And you do a very cool thing with your company that you inform commodities traders. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah, we've, um, we're working on a, a system that allows us to create tradable contracts using satellite imagery and some other data sources. It's kind of like the DNA for those contracts and it helps big commodity traders to find new sources of supply and it helps small traders like farmers for example to sell their goods uh, at a better price as well so it should help both buyers and sellers that's what our target is and are you unique in this are there other companies that can do this or is this a very new area far as we know kim and I, you always got to be careful with this but as far as we know we're the first company in the world that has actually turned earth observation data directly into a commodity supply contract so far there's a few people that have done kind of similar things but without the earth observation satellite imagery component but we think we're the first ones that have done it definitely for coffee that's so, amazing yeah. and it's all happening in scotland who'd have thought right i know yeah it's bizarre and um we we were also focused on coffee mainly that's like the commodity that we we've worked mostly with and you know all of our clients and interest are in south america and new york where there's a big coffee trading community. It's been a bit of a journey so far, but we've got lots more to do as well. How did you even come up with this idea? Where did this come mm. from? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. And well, my own career has been a little bit of a journey from starting off in space science and then working with space hardware, satellite hardware, and now much more focused on downstream applications of satellite data. And I realized from working within the industry that Downstreams where a lot of the real innovation is happening. It's where there is lots of opportunities to create new kinds of services and systems. I spotted that one of the biggest and fastest growing users of satellite data was a farming 
and agricultural sector. I think you did a great program and podcast about that recently. But also round about the same time, we were, I was playing with ideas of what could we do to make agricultural trading a bit better and work a bit more equitably for everyone involved. I was spending a lot of time in Switzerland where my brother lives and I was exposed to a lot of the Crypto Valley community. And this would be two or three years ago when the Bitcoin bubble was like insane. And there was a lot of really interesting things happening there. Then, And I suddenly realized that it's a matter of time before people start learning how to integrate satellite data more effectively into these so-called smart contracts, which are the, the kind of software programs within a blockchain. Now, it's only a matter of time before we start doing that. So I think we were one of the first ones to start experimenting with satellite data and blockchain. And then we realized that actually this gives us a way to turn satellite data into an actual tangible, almost fungible digital contract. And I think that's really exciting, the, the opportunities that there are within that. You're fusing blockchain with satellite data. I mean, how clever does a person have to be? Well, we've made so many, we've learned a lot along the way. It's something we we thought might be relatively straightforward, actually, because, you know, a lot of satellite, obviously it's digital in format anyway. It shouldn't be too difficult, to, but smart contracts and blockchains are kind of in their infancy and quite low tech in a way. They're at least very low data file sizes. So trying to get like a multi gigabyte satellite image into like a few kilobits worth of useful information so that it can be used and moved around the blockchain is one of the big challenges that we have. Interesting. Yeah. See, these are the things that you don't even conceive of, really. It's so yeah. it's so futuristic, isn't it? Is it exciting yeah. for you? It is, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And we've, you know, we, we're on a steep learning curve and that's always fun and interesting as well. And we, you know, we kind of are breaking new ground. We are finding and then sometimes solving challenges that we come up against and or finding workarounds. So it, it is kind of, it feels a bit like swashbuckling, uh, data science, you know, we're, it, it, it is good fun. Yeah, I think we're all doing we're all um, enjoying it. And you're based in the Bayes Centre, which has come up, I think, in every single episode of this podcast, because it's the real hub, isn't it? What's the benefits of being in Bayes? It's just been such a vibrant community that we've had there. And I, I think that helps us a lot in terms of just bouncing ideas off around the people that are there in the rooms. We get loads of great advice. Um, we, we were part of the WERA Accelerator Programme, which is a blockchain accelerator programme. And there were a lot of really interesting characters and experts and that, that would come into the, the building and give us kind of advice and insight into how to actually build commercial products in the, the blockchain sphere. So that was really invaluable. So I think it's just um, it seems to have a lot of gravity about it. The building, it draws people in from all kinds of interesting backgrounds and and, and kind of fuses a lot of different ideas and conversations together. That's really the best thing about it. Hard to explain, though. Yeah. I think I think you did well to get three desks because I hear they're like mm. ridiculously oversubscribed. So congratulations just yeah, on the real we, estate. I know. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get back in there soon. And um, yeah, we've got three desks. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, we, we could do one or two more as well, but we won't push our luck for that. <laughs> 
And so what about in terms of investment? Have you had support commercially? You've obviously had a lot of support with growing your business, but what about the commercial side? So we haven't actually raised any private investment yet, although we are trying to do that now. So if anyone's listening, please get in touch. We're we're actually on part of a journey with that at the moment as well. And we've been signed up to the EIE program, uh, which has been really helpful because that's kind of acted as a line in the sand for us. It's one of the challenges you face as a startup is getting everything together and ready to raise investment. At some points, it's the most important thing you're doing for a couple of months and then it kind of something else happens and you have to go back to it. You lose a bit of momentum. So the the EIE program's given us a line in the sand and, and a kind of bit of structure around how we go about trying to do that. Um, but no, we've not raised investment yet. It was our target to do that this year and we had a few interesting discussions ongoing to try and close investment. But kind of stalled a little bit right now. I think the whole world has stalled right now, isn't it? And obviously yeah, yeah. <laughs> by EIE, you're meaning Engage, Invest, Exploit, which is the amazing conference that happens. I don't know what time it's going to happen this year, but um, yeah, it's always yeah. a really good event, isn't it? I've been, been lucky enough to attend the last couple, but you know, we, we weren't sort of pitching. Uh, we are this year and it's been rescheduled. So that I think the plan is now that that will take place in October this year, which is still still perfectly within our kind of sweet spot for timelines yeah so that's good as a journalist it's always an absolute gold mine of stories for me i'm always there as well so right, i'll definitely okay. see you there yeah. um, and what about the people that are using your data what are they aware that it's even possible are you having to do quite a lot of education well do you know funnily enough the people that are using it are kind of aware that and one of the reasons we found our first big client so quickly was because they had actually already done a bit of their own research into not quite what we're doing, but they were looking at how to use blockchain software to make their supply chain more efficient. So the company that we're working with has around about 30,000 suppliers in Brazil that supply coffee to them from small farms. And they, they face lots of different challenges in managing that efficiently. So um, using a blockchain gives them an opportunity to move coffee around uh, kind of efficiently, basically. But they hadn't. They also had some interest in using geospatial imagery and satellite imagery to understand how much coffee is going to come to market this year or next year, five years' time from now. But they hadn't actually been able to put those two things together. So I think that we stepped up at a really timely point where we said, well, look, we kind of do a bit of both of those things. We're very well connected to people that do both of those things very well. And we can help to fuse uh, this kind of technical challenge. So the industry is, or at, the, at least on the kind of soft agricultural commodity side, it's getting there by itself. And, you know, we, I think we're just kind of filling in that last little connecting piece between these two different supply chain management technologies, most of which are going digital now, and also earth observation imagery as well. So coffee today, what's next? Coffee today, um, some of the other things we're looking at are bananas, uh, sugar, cocoa, they're all, all basic, more or less any of the largely traded soft commodities. With coffee, we've worked a lot with the University of Edinburgh and uh, Ibuka as well, who's on your programme, 
He's done a lot of work with us as well to develop our own detection models we can use. But I think for future different crops, we want to use other people's models. So there is no point in us developing ways to detect all of these things when loads of people have already done that. So um, the next challenge for us is now that we've proven the concept is to get better at integrating other people's data into our trading platform. Just a small job, not much to do. There, yeah, eh? yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> well, I uh, no, that that'll be a big challenge for sure. But hopefully, it shouldn't take quite as long as as uh, the first one took with coffee. And you've got a quite a cool background because you've always worked in space, haven't you? So, what was it about space that really attracted you in the first place? Well, that's a big. Good question. I mean, I suppose it's true. I started, um, I did an undergraduate degree in astrophysics and astronomy. And um, back then it was just like, it seems like the most fun and exciting thing to, to work on. And, you know, and then I, so I did that. And then I found that the reality is there aren't that many jobs in astronomy. It's very interesting and stuff. Then I moved and drifted towards engineering. Um, and started looking at what more of the actual satellite systems. I worked with a company called Clyde Space in Glasgow. Um, I was one of the first joiners there. So I think we were still in a tiny little broom cupboard type office. And I think I was like one of the first employees that, that joined Clyde Space and Craig and the team there. We worked a lot with small satellite hardware. Flyspace is one of the few companies in the world that can build complete satellite systems. So they don't just focus on one thing, they do the whole satellite. So that gives you a really good overview of all of the the kind of functionality of spacecraft. And laterally, spent a lot more time on the downstream uh, data processing and service development. Uh, But what got me into it, uh, coming back to the actual question, Not sure. I, 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 don't, I don't know, Kim. It was just one of those things. <laughs> just sounded cool. You thought you'd give it yeah. a whirl. It was. That, well, you know, in school, I was always really good at maths and I loved maths, to be honest. And actually, my first love was maths. But um, maths, I, I was aware, even from a young age, might be quite dry on its own. Mm-hmm. So I thought the best kind of the, the, the most fun way to apply that was through physics and astronomy and that started a whole chain of events I guess. What do you think about Edinburgh's ambition to be space data capital of Europe? Yeah, I love that it's really exciting and, and it, you know it feels like we're kind of making quite a good fist of it already so far. It's exciting to see that there is a plan around that and for us and for me that's one of the one of the really great things is is having the assurance and the reassurance that there is an infrastructure and a support network there locally to help us achieve our kind of big global ambitions that we have so i'm i'm all for it it's really great and exciting stuff yeah but we're going to need some more buildings though but no the the whole space data capital is really exciting and and you know one of the other really interesting things for us is there's such a big financial services and fintech community in, in and around Edinburgh as well that, that we've actually found that's been really helpful to to kind of link in with as well. So I think all the ingredients seem to be there. It's an amazing mix, isn't it, really? For such a small country and a small city within it, it's amazing what's yeah. really close together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, it is amazing. And I think the word is starting to get out there. I think the rest of the world is starting to see that now and see Edinburgh as being one of the most attractive places to develop these kind of data-driven businesses. And in a similar way to Switzerland and the Crypto Valley, I think, you know, we can have that kind of branding. Oh, what I love as well is you don't live in Edinburgh, you live in Glasgow, and yet it's not an issue at all. And we do have to be careful. Obviously, the podcast is about Edinburgh being the space data capital, but Scotland's small enough that it has to be about the whole country as well, right? It's small enough, yeah. And this is something, yeah, I mean, it takes us, what, an hour or so to commute. It, it's not too bad. I mean, that's no different probably even less of a commute than going from one side of London to the other. I'd love to give a shout out to the School of Geosciences team at the University of Edinburgh, from Stuart to Matt Williams, both of whom have been on your podcast, Ibuka as well, um, and Murray as well, I guess. He, he's doing a great job. The School of Geosciences has, has really helped us a lot. We're very grateful for the support and collaborations and stream of really talented people that we have now. One of the people now working for us that were initially kind of researching with us from the university. So we've had a lot of really great support from them. And the Weira crew. Let me give a shout out to all the Weira crew. Uh, Blockchain (laughs) Accelerator. Yeah, keeping it real. Robin Sampson there, fellow Glaswegian to me and desperate for us all to go out for beers whenever we're able to. I think everybody's desperate to go out for beers whenever we're able to. It might be fun actually to get as many people who've been on the podcast together at once and go for a, uh, a pint in the sun separated oh. by two metres. <laughs> we need to find a park. Are you allowed to drink in parks in Edinburgh? You're not allowed to in it in Glasgow. Are you not? Okay, no. well, we'll find somewhere. We'll find somewhere suitably sensible and responsible for a podcast party. How's that? I think that'd be brilliant and we can hear like Colin talking about Inceptor mission and uh, people knocking heads over blockchain. It'd be fantastic. (laughs) What a party. Oh, we'd probably start a new company if we got all these people in one space. And next week, oh my goodness, we've got some big superstars next week, don't we? Yes. And we've also got (laughs) non-human appearance as well. (laughs) Valkyrie is coming on board. Although, can she speak? Yep. Is that is that one of her powers? Through through her representative. Okay. Um, her interpreter we'll, will be on the show. Ivan, yes. yes. Will we'll be uh, on the show. So talking about the uh, National Robotarium, NASA Valkyrie humanoid robot. Can't wait to hear about that. It's really a showpiece in the base centre, but a really a showpiece, I suppose, for the Scottish space ecosystem. A massive coup to have that piece of engineering here in Scotland. So, But then we've got these international connections making those connections with the USA. We've got David Alexander, OBE, OBE. no less, dialing in from Houston. Uh, So really looking forward to hearing his perspective on the Scottish space sector and also what's going on in Houston. That's going to be an interesting connection to make. Yeah, there was Um, quite surprising revelations in that. Murray burst in on that interview. You couldn't help yourself. You had to come and join in, didn't you? I couldn't help myself, no. I mean, I I love this stuff, as you know. Um, (laughs) And so it's really great to hear as you say, maybe we can get out there at some point. That's my um, goal by the end of 2020. Do yeah. you think it's possible? Let's see. I, what, I mean, what's going to happen with international travel? We have to mm. consider our carbon emissions as well. Of course. Well, okay. We'll, we'll plant a whole forest and you can monitor it for us and that will offset the carbon emissions. 
I don't know. Can, can we offset our trip to the space station? I'll leave you yeah. to do the mathematics and physics around that. Definitely not my forte. <laughs> well, I'll tell you whose forte it is. Uh, Steve Hancock, oh, who is yes. a, uh, a real, real whiz on, uh, on space and, and physics. And such a nice guy as well. He needs to come to yeah. our podcast party. He's, there you go. There's his invite. We've Are got you organising it? I am, yeah. And uh, if anyone else wants to come to the podcast party, drop us a line on Twitter. You know, the more the merrier, as long as you're two metres away from anyone at any one time. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter. Murray's at Murray B. Collins and I'm at Kim McAllister. Brilliant. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.